Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with David Ernest, chair of the Department of Political Science at USD, about Justice Ginsburg's death and the upcoming election. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's great to be back on campus, and it's great to have uh, students back on campus either after a rather extended uh, summer break. So uh, our beautiful fall weather and the students back on campus really make for a, uh, a much more pleasant experience than we had when we were all in isolation. You know, David, we have a global pandemic, international economic crisis, national social unrest, an upcoming presidential election. Um, obviously, we don't have a lot to talk about today, so this will be a probably quick episode, <laughs> right? But uh, to be serious, I mean, I, I just try to think about this sometimes, like, are there historical precedents for what we're going through? Um, can you provide any historical context? I mean, do you see any similarities to any previous periods in American history? So you... You, you made an interesting observation in your question when you noted that that so much of what we're experiencing right now is a global crisis. It's a pandemic that has uh, spread across the six populated continents, and it's had economic repercussions in every economy in the world. Uh, and, and in some respects, that's what's unprecedented. We haven't had a presidential election uh, in the context of a global crisis quite like this previously. So many historians have pointed to the 1968 election in the United States as a time of comparable social unrest and and even protest and violence in the United States. And in a domestic sense, that's true. Uh, but, but there wasn't the global context and the global problems in 1968 that we're facing today. So uh, in some respects, this feels uh, unprecedented. Um, you know, I, I obviously I think that the election coming up is is something that is getting to be more on people's mind. Um, you know, I just think about it from just like a practical perspective of like, what is the pandemic going to do to the process, um, to the strategic calculations that candidates are making? I mean, just to basic campaigning. I mean, we don't have, you know, parade season um, here in South Dakota right now. So it's hard for you know, I think candidates to maybe get out and meet people. I mean, how do you think the pandemic is going to influence the election maybe broadly? Those are great observations because uh, the pandemic is changing uh, elections at all scales, from the local to the presidential election uh, nationally. Uh, so much of the media focus, I think, has been on the impact on the presidential election. And there has been quite a bit of discussion about uh, the, the increase uh, in mail-in voting or absentee voting uh, across the country that, that may well accompany this. Uh, there has been some speculation about how that might affect voter uh, turnout at the polls. Um, I think one of the interesting consequences at the national level is that our traditional barometer of the election, the public opinion poll, is much less meaningful in the sense that if people are casting their ballots today, uh, as an absentee ballot or as a, as a mail-in vote, what the polls show in two weeks has no impact on that person's vote. So um, the, the, the polling data, I think, leading up to the November election is likely to be somewhat biased or inaccurate because it doesn't effectively account for absentee voting. Now, the, the other point you made, which is, you know, candidates for the U.S. Congress or the Senate or state offices, um, how are they campaigning? How can they get out? I think the, 
point of or the takeaway I have there is that for down ticket or down ballot candidates, they are going to depend more than ever on the state and national party organization, and they're going to rely more than ever on coattail effects uh, because they are going to be unable to reach so much of the electorate. Uh, they're going to depend more on straight ticket voters to carry them uh, into office. And so the interesting phenomenon, I think the interesting question I have as a political scientist is to what degree will we see straight ticket voting versus split ticket voting in November? Um, and I would bet we're going to see an increase in straight ticket voting precisely because voters just haven't had a chance to get to know their candidates down the ballot. You know, we just recently had um, both of the parties' political conventions. Were there any takeaways, I guess, that um, you found interesting from both or either of the parties' convention? Aside from the obvious interesting point, which was they were essentially virtual conventions as opposed to the normal uh, in-person convention, I think there were two quite surprising takeaways. Um, the, the first surprising takeaway is that the Republican Party opted not to issue a policy platform. Uh, traditionally, national party conventions not only nominate their candidate for the presidency, but they identify what, what are called the planks, the platform planks, which are the key policy goals that they have set for their candidates. They are an expression of the policies they will seek to implement once they are elected to office. And the Republican Party this year chose not to issue a platform, uh, which is quite unusual and uh, I think surprised a lot of observers. The other outcome that was surprising is normally after a convention, candidates receive a little bit of a bump in their opinion, in opinion poll ratings and in voter preferences. And normally the polling data shows that candidates will receive a little bit of a favorability increase after the conventions. This year, neither candidate received much, if any, of a uh, bump in their polling numbers. And that's surprising. That seems to suggest that voters have made up their minds prior to the conventions, that there aren't a whole lot of voters out there to be swayed, and that people's opinions are pretty fixed. You know, that I find that so interesting, especially the point you made um, just about the way absentee voting works, right? That, uh, you, you know, if, if, if you vote today, obviously you cannot change your mind um, two weeks from that, right? You know, but, but I also think about this just in the way that time maybe is is perceptionally changed in the pandemic, right? Like the last six months has felt like, you know, two years to a certain yeah. extent, right? And so it, it it's interesting to me to, to hear you kind of analyze the polling data um, and say that maybe kind of opinions are dug in when it still feels like, you know, I don't know how many weeks we are away from the election, but it, it still feels like we could be you know, so much could change and, and happen that could influence um, the way people perceive who perceive who or what party they want to vote for. I mean, it, that, that's just a really interesting variable to me. I, I, I share that sense of puzzlement and that sense of paradox that uh, of the moment in which we exist. And historically, even in recent years, there have been elections that have really been the, 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 the opinion of the electorate has swung one way or the other only within the last six or eight weeks of the campaign. So right now we're 60 days out. So we're uh, not quite, we're about nine, nine plus weeks out from the, from the election. In 2008, 
the electorate swung towards Barack Obama against John McCain in mid to late September. And in 2016, the electorate swung against Hillary Clinton and towards Donald Trump in October, in mid-October. So it's, it's not unprecedented to see large changes in sentiment and large changes in voter preferences uh, fairly late into the general election, into the campaign. Uh, and, and you raise a great question. Will we see such a swing this year? And on the one hand, I share your sense that this has been a year of such uh, uh, you know, surprise and, and disruption and change that one can anticipate that, you know, perhaps we will see a collapse in the housing market or we will see uh, a mass increase in joblessness or we will see increased violence uh, in, in the streets, all of which we would say that's likely to have a big impact on voter opinion. Um, and, and that may well be the case. But this year, you know, not only is it the uh, absentee ballot or the mail uh, voting that's sort of locked in people's opinions, the polling data has been very consistent. It has not varied much for either candidate uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks now. So we just haven't seen the normal volatility in the polls um, that we normally see. Um, it's it's a very unusual year. You know, I, to switch topics here, I, I guess a little bit, even though everything seems interconnected. I mean, there's been a lot of it's been you know a summer of social unrest in a, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. You know, I, I keep going back to maybe the beginning of the summer um, and just you know when the initial sort of protests happen um, in the wake of you know the killing of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor as well. Um, it just seemed to be sort of like the match that kind of lit a larger flame that had been maybe bubbling, you know, un- under the surface. I- I'm curious again, like from a historical perspective, I mean, h- how do you place the social unrest that's happening in America right now with larger civil rights struggles, larger social movements um, that have occurred in American history? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, we're still in this historical moment. It's still unfolding. And so it's a challenge uh, from the perspective of the present to judge this in a historical context. But what I can say from a political science standpoint is uh, when political scientists think about um, social unrest or they think about civil violence and, and sudden dramatic political change, they like to make this distinction between what they call normal politics in transgressive politics. Normal politics is what we learn in the textbooks. It's how our institutions work, how our elected representatives respond to the incentives that the voters give them, uh, how the courts uh, adjudicate questions of rights and liberties. That's normal politics. Transgressive politics, political scientists say, occur when those normal institutions stop functioning. They stop assisting the people that they're meant to serve. And when people feel that their elected representatives, the constitutional order, the institutions, the courts that they rely upon, when they feel that those institutions have ceased to serve their interests, that's when we see this transition to a moment of transgressive politics. So an interesting question for me is, is this a a moment of transgressive politics? Um, Peaceful civil protest is not necessarily transgressive politics. Transgressive politics can be things like 
large scale uh, disregard of the law. Um, it can be mass um, refusal to pay taxes, things like that. And we're not quite at that point yet that I would say we're seeing the widespread disregard for our political institutions and processes. But we are seeing widespread discontent. And you, you use the metaphor of, of the match. Um, you know, the question is, have we, have we lit the kindling or have we lit the full bonfire? And I think that's a question that will be answered in the coming weeks and months. David, you talk about the idea of you know transgressive politics. I mean, and I, I guess again, like to to use this metaphor. I mean, are are there just like inflection points? I mean, what would be a catalyst? I guess for you know these larger social movements or e- even the counter kind of movements that have sprung up against them. I mean, wh- what do you think would push us over the edge? Yeah, that's a really great question. And there are historical examples of those inflection points that you mentioned. Uh, the one that I think is uh, at least popularly well-known are uh, the East German protests in 1989 that led to the toppling of the Berlin Wall. Uh, over the course of 10 or 11 months, what started off as a small set of gatherings uh, at a church in Leipzig, Germany, uh, mushroomed into mass protests including hundreds of thousands of East German citizens. And that was a situation that that quickly transitioned from sort of small-scale local politics to this, as you say, inflection point or this transition to a new state, which, of course, eventually led to the reunion of East and West Germany. Um, And I, I, I feel like there are two answers to your question. You know, one is those inflection points usually are surprises. The, the, the very nature of them is that we can't foresee or predict them because they are uh, unusual events. Uh, and yet we know that they occur. You know, the metaphor, it, it's not a terribly original metaphor, but the metaphor would be an earthquake. You know, we know that earthquake happen, earthquakes happen. And we can be confident that sooner or later earthquakes will occur, but we can't pre- predict the precise day and moment when they will occur. And, uh, and and so just like when we study earthquakes, we look for the buildup of stress and, and pressure on tectonic plates. When we think about revolutions, we look for the buildup of stress and pressure in our political institutions and practices. And we're certainly seeing those stresses and pressures, uh, but we've seen them before in this country. We've seen them in 1968. Uh, we've seen them during the Great Depression. Uh, we, we often forget that in the 19, uh, early 1930s, 1930, 1931, we had what were called Hoover, Hoovervilles, which were mass camps of homeless people, uh, and they named their encampments after President Hoover as sort of a, a, a derisive knock on his lack of leadership. So we've had periods of massive social disruption in this country that we have managed with our normal politics and our normal institutions. Um, and what, what would concern me, and I think what would, to me, be an alert or an indicator of that transition moment would be a, a rapid increase in, in civil violence. Um, in the past few weeks, um, we saw uh, two protesters in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, were killed. We saw a protester 
a counter protester in Portland, Oregon, who was shot and killed. Um, every death is, is a tragedy and is a loss and is um, an indicator of the failure of our institutions. If one or two deaths suddenly becomes 15 or 20 deaths or 30 or 50 deaths, then suddenly I fear that we might rapidly escalate to that moment of transition that you're talking about. Well, and you know, maybe the reason why I asked you to try to place it in historical context for us, I mean, I think the question I really want to ask is just like, well, how worried are you? I mean, how, how worried are you right now with where we're at? I'm quite worried. Um, this this does feel um, different. You know, it, it does feel uh, different than our normal politics. And what concerns me not so much, I, I'm not so concerned about um, the protests per se. Uh, I'm not so concerned about the uh, passion with which people hold their opinions or, or the stridency with which they express them. What concerns me is the inability for us to have dialogue, you know, the inability for parties to hear each other and to find uh, grounds on which to disagree peaceably and reasonably. And um, not so long ago in this country, that was a hallmark of our politics. Even, even a decade ago or maybe, maybe 15 years ago, um, we could disagree passionately about issues, but we respected um, the legitimacy of those with whom we disagreed. We respected the legitimacy of their opinions, and we respected the uh, the legitimacy of their uh, the power that they democratically held. And um, there has been a decline in that civil dialogue in our society, and and that greatly concerns me. And it greatly concerns me, not merely that there's been a decline in civil dialogue, but that has has also led to a rhetoric of delegitimizing the other, of saying the other's perspective is not you know, real. It's not true. It's not legitimate. It's not respectable. And, um, you know, we can have disagreements about the free market. But I res- if you're a free market enthusiast, I respect your your value for the free for the free market. If you are a an interventionist and wants to see greater government regulation, uh, I respect that. Um, but I, but you know personally, I I don't go around saying your perspective is illegitimate if I disagree with it. And so it's it's that it, that failure to dialogue and that failure to respect each other's legitimacy that I think is the real warning sign for me. You know, to transition to, um, you know, to the international uh, uh, arena, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about how the pandemic has obviously not spared, um, you know, any continent, any country, yeah. um, essentially. I mean, where is the international order? I mean, how stable is it? Um the alliances, I guess, that we have relied on for, I mean, decades at this point, I mean, are they also at risk of disintegrating under, I guess, all of the pressure that the pandemic has sort of placed upon them? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, and I don't think I would use the word disintegrate. I would use the word realign. I think we can see foresee some radical changes in the international order and the international institutions on which we rely. Uh, and a couple of the significant changes that we've just seen in the last uh, four to six years 
Uh, obviously, we've seen the European Union change considerably with the withdrawal of the United Kingdom. We have seen uh, a growing degree of uh, distrust within the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, within NATO. Um, we have seen the uh, withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Accord and the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, and so we have seen uh, various shifts in states being members of or withdrawing from a number of important international agreements, international institutions. And that's the kind of realignment that I think is going to be fundamental. And I think one of the, when I think about the politics of COVID-19, typically what I tend to think of is it's not changing things, it's accelerating them. It's accelerating political trends and processes that, that would have happened eventually. I just think they're going to happen quicker. And I think we're going to see uh, increasing uh, uh, United States uh, independence from a number of international organizations. Uh, just within the last week or two, the United States stated that it would not participate in the World Health Organization's plans for the distribution of a vaccine for COVID-19. The United States position is that the United States will handle its vaccine on its own. Um, and so, you know, greater United States in, in independence, uh, and I think increased influence of other world powers in traditional organizations. I think we'll see a much larger influence of Germany and NATO. I think we'll see a much larger influence of China in the World Trade Organization. And those were trends that I think were underway already. I just think the pandemic has just has just accelerated those trends. I mean, I always think about this when I was a high school debater. We used to talk a lot about like international power theory and hegemony and stuff like that. And uh, it makes me think like, especially with the way the pandemic has played out internationally, the way other countries have handled it, you know, versus, I guess, the way the United States has. Is the American moment at risk? I mean, is our place internationally, I guess, at risk of declining? One might argue that the American moment or the American decline has been underway for some time. It depends on how you define that and how you measure it. Uh, you know, as, as long ago as 1973, the United States abandoned dollar-gold convertibility, which fundamentally changed the international economy and changed international U.S. leadership of the international economy. So these processes of change have been underway for quite some time. Um, I, I do think that the American moment is at, at sunset. I think we are seeing the end of American leadership of the international system. And the question then becomes, what replaces that? And that's a concerning question. Historically, we have seen these transitions in global leadership only through warfare. You know, there's an international relations theory called power transition theory. And you know, the theory proposes that these large transitions in our international system typically are accompanied not only by great warfare, global wars, but they're also accompanied by fundamental shifts in our political philosophy and our political ideology. So World War I uh, not only marked 
the beginning of the end of the British Empire, the beginning of the end of the great European empires, but it also marks the end of monarchy as a form of government. Um, World War II, which also saw basically cemented the end of the British Empire and saw the rise of Soviet and American power. Um, World War II saw the emergence of socialism and communism as a political philosophy. So these power transitions occur not merely with changes in power, but changes with political philosophies and how we organize our societies. And uh, when we're faced with such disruption due to the pandemic, it's an intriguing question. You know, is the moment right for that kind of philosophical change and how we think about ourselves as political beings and how we think of our relationship between citizen and state? David, that was a great answer. I'm just trying to think how we can put a positive spin on this. Um, you know, David, obviously the international system is under a lot of pressure. So is, you know, domestically, I, I, I think our institutions, I mean, you know, we're at college campus. What do you tell students studying political science right now about this moment and how they can maybe improve our situation going forward? That's a fascinating question, because I can give you an academic answer, and I can give you an answer as a classroom instructor. And I, I, I think there's a connection between the two. Let me see if I can articulate my thoughts here. As a scholar of the international system, which is my specialization, as I think about the disruptions of this moment and the um, portents of this moment, the portents of change, um, one of the things I do tell my students is state power means something different today than it meant even 30 years ago when I was an undergraduate. Um, we live in an era of global connectedness, and that global connectedness comes with vulnerability to job loss and economic disruption and pandemics, but it comes with great opportunity in the form of ideas and the rapidity and power with which ideas transcend borders. And while American traditional indicators of American power may be changing, while we may represent a smaller portion of the global economy or our debt may be unsustainable, um, the influence of American culture and American ideas is perhaps unparalleled. It's and, and for the last 20 years, it, I think American culture, American ideas have been enormously influential through cultural transmission, through uh, the media, through the innovations of our te technological sectors. And so I tell the students, you know, this is a moment of tremendous opportunity as well. But as an instructor, I, I also, and I think all of my colleagues here at USD share this philosophy. We want to prepare, I, I tell the students, we want to prepare you to be, you know, a knowledgeable, informed, and engaged citizen. And we want you to be a knowledgeable and informed citizen of South Dakota, of the United States, and of our globe. And we work to prepare each student, to provide each student not only with knowledge, that is, prepare them academically. But we want to prepare them professionally and personally as well. And so much of the work that we do in the classroom 
is also about providing job skills, providing job opportunities and internships, and reminding them of their civic responsibilities as thoughtful leaders of tomorrow. The College of Arts and Sciences here at USD, our motto, our mission, is to train the leaders of tomorrow, the leaders of tomorrow who will solve tomorrow's most pressing challenges. And that's what we tell the students, is that you know this isn't merely um, academic knowledge that we're providing you. We're providing you with skills and values to solve the most pressing issues of tomorrow. And so that's the connection I try to make, is that we live in a moment of opportunity, and with that opportunity comes the responsibility of the young professional to uh, use your knowledge, your skills, your gifts in the service of our communities and our society. You know, David, I want to ask one more, I guess this is probably a, a philosophical question, but in the last six months, has the world gotten smaller? I, I, I don't know if you totally understand the question I'm asking, but I mean, sure. That that's the the sense maybe that I worry about is that social mobility, uh, travel, um, the ability to connect with different people, uh, different communities. That's that seems to be at risk, and I worry about the impact that that has. Um, obviously, just from a social perspective, but also when you think about you know kids going out into the world and and having opportunities um, to do things with their life. I mean. You talk about how obviously challenges create opportunities. I mean, what is your perception right now? I, I guess of the world. I mean, are is kind of the the freedom of mobility is that another thing that's been at risk? I think you've identified one of the fascinating but troubling paradoxes of the moment. It fascinates me as a scholar. It troubles me as a citizen. Um, we live in an era where we have. More, not, more information than ever, but less knowledge than ever. We live in an era when we are more connected than ever, but also more isolated than ever. So on, and, and the last six months, I think the pandemic has invited all of us to reflect upon those paradoxes. So as I socially isolate uh, in my home here in Vermilion, and by way of context, I'm, I'm a single man. I have an adult son who doesn't live with me. So uh, social isolation for me is, is relatively easy. Um, I, I am more physically distant than ever from extended family, from my son who lives on the East Coast. Uh, and yet, modern technology allows me to remain connected. And so I can follow the people I love. I can follow them on social media. They can contact me through Zoom or through uh, email or by phone. And, and so as the moment of social distancing suggests, we're in this profound moment of the reconfiguration of our social geography. And by our social geography, I mean the ways and forms in which we interact as communities. And the paradox is, even as we are isolated physically for purposes of safety, we are finding ways, new ways, to bond and connect. And as you suggest, this reconfigured social geography has really profound implications for our students. Our students normally spend their summers pursuing internships. 
They spend their summers in the field doing research. And those options were not available this summer and may not be available next summer. And so the question, a profound question is, how do we provide opportunities for those students in this environment? And, how, and more generally, how do we provide opportunity for our citizens in these circumstances? And it, it, it's a challenge, but we're finding new ways. And just as we're finding new ways to hold meetings as professionals or we're finding new ways to do work, the pandemic is forcing us to find new ways to provide opportunities for our students. So, excuse me, for one example, we had a student who had an internship uh, to work with the International Organization of Migration in Dakar, Senegal. She was planning on spending her summer in Dakar uh, last summer. And around March, they canceled that internship. And so she suddenly didn't have a summer opportunity. Well, we put her in touch with a team of researchers in Virginia who were also working on, on migration. And this student was able to, in virtual distant form, join that research team and contribute to the research project that they were doing. So while travel is limited and while our ability to physically exist in some places is for the time being suspended, all of us are finding new ways. And I, I find that heartening. I find that, uh, I, I find that that's an expression of our resilience and our innovation as a community. And that's true very much here at USD among the students and faculty and staff. But I think it's true of our country as a whole. Um, with so much bad news, it's easy to focus on the negatives and the concerns and the worries. And it's easy to miss the myriad ways that we've succeeded. And um, I, I hope we can all find moments of pause to reflect upon in our own lives the ways that we've discovered new forms of togetherness, new forms of connection, new forms of work, and new bonds in, in our community. It's, 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 it's a fascinating time. A week or two ago, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, passed away. She was a member of the Supreme Court. And that has, I think, a lot of implications, both for um, the judiciary itself, but also, uh, you know, the election consequences with um, the election coming up here in November. Um, just initially, what's your reaction to her passing, uh, maybe her legacy, and ultimately um, what you think will play out the next few weeks and months? Those are fantastic questions. She obviously uh, was beloved by many. Uh, she had a long uh, term of service on the court and was influential in writing a number of, of rather important decisions. Um, I think she was, uh, for many, uh, a clear voice for progressive ideas and progressive policies. And so her loss will be consequential because, of course, she will be replaced with a more conservative-leaning justice. And so that will have long-term consequences for the balance of the court. Uh, the immediate question, which, of course, has been consuming politicos and observers, is the politics of this. And how will the effort to uh, fill that vacancy impact the forthcoming presidential election? And I've been a little surprised uh, at the Republicans' haste to uh, push through Judge Barrett as uh, uh, the prospective new justice. What surprises me is that this rush to replace Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg puts some senators who are up for re-election in a difficult spot. A number of vulnerable senators, particularly Senator Gardner from Colorado, 
uh, are in a position where their prospective voters do not approve of this rush to replace Ginsburg. And so the Senate is going to be forcing some of its most vulnerable members to take an unpopular vote and possibly lose their seats in the November election. So the trade-off seems to be a calculation that the gain of a solid conservative majority on the court is worth the prospective loss of the Senate for at least two years. You know, I, I think so much of um, the initial reaction is just the the swing it would have in terms of the justices. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sort of a progressive icon, and um, you know, Judge Barrett may may be the same thing except for conservatives, right? Um, and I think that's the, part of the reason why people have had you know such a visceral reaction to it. You know, there have been talks of. Um, Democrats responding that if the Republicans sort of push through uh, the nomination, um, especially in the wake that they treated Merrick Garland, um, President Obama's last nomination to the Supreme Court, not allowing a vote in that in the last year of a presidential election. I mean, are we at risk of Democrats responding um, and kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and, and you know trying to add new justices to the court? Or what what could be ways that I guess Democrats would respond um if this nomination is confirmed, but then they regain control of the Senate, hypothetically the presidency, and retain the House um, in November? I would be surprised if there was a a majority of support among the Democratic caucus for changing the number of justices. Uh, although that is a prerogative of the Congress uh, under, under the Constitution, the Congress sets the number of justices on, on the court. Uh, I would be quite surprised if the Democrats took such a drastic step. Uh, the odds would then become every new incoming administration with a change of party would readjust the membership on the court, and the court would essentially become much more politicized than it already is. So I'd, I'd be surprised to see that. Um, but, but the prospect is, you know, Judge Barrett is a relatively young woman. She is not yet 50 years old and has 30 or 40 years of prospective service on the bench of, of, of the Supreme Court. And we are looking at a rightward leaning Supreme Court in power for decades. And how the Democrats respond to that is an interesting question. One possible strategy will be that the Democrats will respond to that through legislation. Um, the Democrats, if they control the Congress uh, and they can uh, set agendas, um, they can circumvent certain judicial rulings simply by passing law. So we, we, it, it will be interesting to see. But again, I'd be surprised if there was an effort to uh, alter the, the composition of the court. Um, but it is a difficult book. There's, there's a certain... Uh, historical arc coming full circle on this because Judge Barrett, of course, was a clerk for Justice Scalia. And Judge Barrett herself is a uh, an originalist, uh, like Justice Scalia was. And it was Scalia's death that led to Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, refusing to seat Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. And so the original, maybe not the original, but that uh, fundamental conflict that occurred in the last year of the Obama administration was because of Senator, uh, because of Justice Scalia's passing. And now one of his acolytes, one of his protégés, is 
in all likelihood going to be seated on, on, on the court. And it is the culmination of McConnell's effort to protect the conservative majority of the court, and he has succeeded. You know, what would be, um, I mean, we talk about just the, the implications of, you know, a conservative court for decades to come. I mean, how, how will that fundamentally um, shift, I guess, uh, certain laws? I mean, is the right to privacy at risk? Is abortion at risk? Um, what type of impact will her vote have on the court? The, the speculation is um, the most likely uh, sort of major uh, lightning uh, issue to change in the coming term will be Obamacare. There are there is a pending case before the Supreme Court that may rule that the court may invalidate portions of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, a, a Justice Barrett, in all likelihood, would be a conservative vote on that particular issue. So that might be the first touchstone to fall. The others, as you note, that I think people are concerned about are uh, Roe versus Wade and uh, ab- abortion rights and reproductive rights. Those will likely face some fundamental challenges. And I think activists who are seeking to change some of these court precedents see in a prospective Justice Barrett an ally who will help them achieve those aims. But I think there's reason for avoiding a rush to judgment on how the court will act on some of these cases for two reasons. One is Chief Justice Robert has shown a keen sense of the importance of the court's legitimacy. And historically, Chief Justices have been reluctant to take the court too far away from popular opinion. And Justice Roberts has shown his intent of keeping the court from making decisions that would be too controversial and too damaging to the court's credibility with the American public. The other reason, I think, for cautious uh, for caution on speculation about how the court will rule is that there is a history of justices evolving their thinking while on the bench. A number of justices have evolved from relatively conservative positions to relatively moderate or progressive positions. Uh, the most recent case of that was Justice Souter, who was an appointee of, I believe, George H.W. Bush. And Justice Souter, uh, by the end of his service, was a reliable member of the liberal bloc of the court. So justices uh, come to the bench with certain uh, uh, dispositions and certain beliefs about statutory interpretation, but they are themselves uh, students, and they themselves learn and evolve and change. And I think they learn and evolve and change from their conversations with each other. So it's not a foregone conclusion that there will be a staunch conservative block on every issue. I expect, although I can't say on what issues, I expect some uh, conservative activists be disappointed with at least some of the court's rulings in the coming years. Yeah, David, I'm curious just with, with you know your perspective, obviously, um, your knowledge of political systems, um, your experience here at USD. I mean, do you have any parting thoughts just on the collective experience that this country has gone through the last six months and how it's kind of changed our you know collective conscience? 
That's a great question. Uh, I, I think for all of us, this is an historically unique moment. Um, it, it's, it's one that in the lifetimes of, of all of us is essentially unprecedented. Um, you know, my parents are in their 80s, and they tell me they've never experienced anything like this. And, uh, and so there's, on, on the one hand, there's this uncertainty and uh, discomfort with what does this mean? What does the protest and the wrestling with social justice mean? Uh, what does the divisive politics mean for our society? And those are natural concerns and natural worries. On the other hand, all of us are going through this together. Um, the, the, the pandemic doesn't separate some of us from the others. You know, the pandemic doesn't focus only on the cities and leave our farms alone. The pandemic doesn't focus only on Democrats or Republicans. Uh, the economic crisis doesn't discern or discriminate. This is a process and this is an experience that we share. And societies that share traumatic experiences, I think, find strength in unity, find strength in togetherness. And uh, interestingly, this summer, uh, I watched the great uh, uh, miniseries on HBO about Chernobyl, about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. And the documentary, talk, or the, the drama, talked about the, hero the heroism of the Soviet people in responding to this crisis. And one character in the middle of the miniseries says to, the, to another character, each generation of Russians must have its crisis. It, this is what bonds us as a community and as a, as, as a society. Um, we're so individualistic in this country, we oftentimes forget that we are united by common traumas, by common experiences. And um, I, I, I think my hope is 10, 15 years from now, we can look back on this moment and say, this was a moment when we were at our best, when we found commonality, when we found the strength to collaborate and solve problems and to care for each other. Um, one of the great things in South Dakota is there's a great spirit of support for each other. Uh, when your neighbor's barn is destroyed, uh, you go over and you offer help. Uh, you don't ask first whether or not he shares your political views. Um, those are the kinds of support that I think we're seeing in communities at the micro level. And my hope is it's those acts of caring and support that allow us to come through this with a greater sense of togetherness than we've had in some time. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your perspective. We always appreciate, um, you know, just your wisdom and your knowledge. And as a former, uh, or I guess as a uh, alumnus of the Department of Political Science, it's always nice to know that uh, you're leading the department, especially in a moment like this. So thank you, sir. Thank you for all the work that you do here on campus. Well, thank you, Michael. And and uh, as you know, the Marines have a saying, there's no such thing as a former Marine. So there's no such thing as a former political science or criminal justice major. Once you're, once you're our major, you are always our major. <laughs> That's fair enough. Fair enough, David. Thanks again. <laughs> All right, Michael, thank you. Be well.